Swing and a drive. Right field and deep. Back goes Aquino. It's got a chance. Gone. Get out the tape measure. Long gone. Fly the W. Cubs fans, it's time to fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley Jean. You are listening to the Fly the W670 podcast. It's season two. It's episode 62, a Christopher Morrell miracle. Crowley, don't forget to listen, download, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on the socials. Fly the W670 on Twitter, Instagram, and of course on Facebook. You can email us also, fly the W670 at gmail.com. Crowley joining me today from an undisclosed location. Uh, I'm surprised you're sober at this point, Crowley, after a Christopher Morrell miracle last night at Wrigley Field. Well, we were about to have a completely different show, weren't we? It's it's funny how when you're writing these <laughs> when you're writing these scripts, and all of a sudden, that's the beauty of baseball, man. That's that, that's that's really what it comes down to. It's just one. All of a sudden, it can turn just like that. Was it going into the eighth of game number two last night? A eighteen uh, percent chance that the Cubs were going to come back to win. We'll get into that in a minute, but first. We'll get into uh, the Kyle Hendricks versus Tuki Toussaint game. And you were at that game, Crowley. I was at that one. And let me just say something, man. Look, I understand people have different ways to get money. But if we're in a playoff push, can we not sell the White Sox fans? Like, I know StubHub and all that stuff. But you can't find a friend that's a white a Cubs fan to, to let him go to the game. That just irritates me a little bit. It was a frustrating so game many, in general, so as you so can tell. There were many White Sox fans last night, huh? When I was there and, and last night too, man, be, be there to cheer on the Cubs. Don't be there to try to make some money. Um, speaking of frustrated though, Kyle Hendricks, man, I, I actually, we snuck into some really good seats and I was really close uh, and I got to watch Kyle and boy, was he pissed off. He was just the victim of a lot of bad luck in the first two inning. The problems for Hendricks started with one out in the first when he walked Andrew Benatendi. That's on him. He shouldn't have done that. Okay, whatever. Can't walk that guy. But then Luis Roberts going to hit a weak single to left. We're going to talk about exit velocity, how fast the ball goes off the bat. On that single, it was a 72 miles per hour. So that is nothing. Uh, basically, if you barrel a ball up, the exit velocity is 98 or higher. So 72 is a weak hit single, which is what Robert did. So now you got two on, and then Eloy Jimenez hits a dribbler that traveled nine feet up the third baseline to load the bases. Then he gets Jan Mokata to hit into one uh, into what looked like a double play, but the ball was only hit at 63 miles per hour, so it's too slow to turn the double play. So a run scores, the Cubs are down one nothing. These are the cheapest <laughs> hits in the world, and, right. and, I, and 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 you know very frustrating. But the Cubs were able to take the lead in the bottom of the inning. We talked about this last time. Tuki Tucson strikes out a lot of guys, walks a guy, a lot of guys, and Talkman let off the game with a walk, and Ian Happ who has been struggling mightily, hits a two-run homer to right center. But the lead did not last long as Kyle Hendricks will continue to get punished by the BABIP gods. Yasmani Grandal hit a single to start the second with an exit below of, wait for it, 72 miles an hour. Then Oscar Colas hit one four feet, but that allowed <laughs> Grandal to reach second with one out. And then Zach Remillard singled on a bunt with an exit below of 28 miles per hour to put runners at the corners. Remillard would steal second and Alvis Andres would single two runs, would score, and the Sox were back up three to two. After that, 
Hendricks threw six innings. He allowed seven hits and only three runs with two walks and four strikeouts. Another quality start for Kyle. But the problem were that those five of those quote-unquote hits came in the first and second innings, and the average exit velocity against Hendricks was 74.6 miles per hour. So they just weren't hitting it hard, but they were putting it where the players weren't. Little little squibbers, balls that just duck snorts had died in between the infielders and outfielders, nothing. It wasn't like they were hitting them hard. Yeah, it was super frustrating. That's a great word for it. They were not hitting him hard, but they, this is the argument versus soft contact, right, or uh, versus missing bats. And Kyle you know, doesn't miss a lot of bats, a um, lot of soft contact. We heard that on the TV broadcast almost to uh, nauseous the amount of times we heard them talking about um, exit velo. If it was a drinking game, Crowley, I would have been drunk by the start of the third inning or as many times as Boog mentioned, uh, exit velo. But the uh, pitching and that the, the luck that the Cubs weren't having was not the only frustrating part. The offense awfully frustrating too, especially with Tuki Toussaint on the hill. Right. And if you remember the last episode, I said I, I kind of predicted a split. I felt like they were going to have trouble with Clevenger, but I thought that they could get to Tuki Toussaint. And he was exactly as advertised what Gabe Ramirez talked about the last show, right? A lively arm, um, but not a lot of control. He only went four innings. He gives up three runs on three hits. He struck out four, but walked five batters, Dustin. Five batters in four innings. But the Cubs only made him pay once for that. Yep, only Talkman once. Walked... The runners with scoring position is a thing as usual. Right. Talkman went ahead, uh, walked ahead of the Ian Happ homer. None of the other four walks came back to hurt him. In the third, Nico singled with one out, and then Ian Happ struck out, but the White Sox and Toussaint with Nico on second chose to walk Cody Bellinger. Hmm. What a, what a novel idea. Don't let the guy that can crush the ball damage you. Wow. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. Who would have so, thought that, who would have thought that uh, Pedro Grafol would outmanage David Ross? Hmm. <laughs> Dansby Swanson struck out, so the choice to pitch around Bellinger worked. Seiya Suzuki would hit a solo home run off Toussaint in the fourth to tie the game, but to me, the key turning point was in the fifth inning. Tukey led off the inning by walking Nico Horner, and his day was done. Tanner Banks comes in on relief, and Nico steals second. You got runners at second, no outs, tie game, weak Sox bullpen, heart of the Cubs lineup, Hapwood line out. Bellinger would fly out and Swanson would ground out to end the threat. So runner at second, no out, heart of your lineup, you get nothing. And that would have been the start of the Sox bullpen dominance as their pen pitched five innings and gave up no runs, no walks, only two hits and completely shut down the Cubs. Yeah, it was really, really, really frustrating. But this game was going to get even more frustrating as we keep going. Right. With, with the game still tied in the seventh, Julian Merriweather was the first out of the pen. He quickly gets first two outs. So you got nobody on base. Luis Robert at the plate, participant in the home run derby, came into the game with 31 homers. And Julian Merriweather hung a 2-2 cement mixer that Roberts crushed to left field. We're, we've been talking about weak exit velocity. That one was out 110 miles per hour. No doubt. Yeah, the park, the park barely held it, Crowley. The park barely held the ball in. Now, Dustin, after getting torched for four home runs in three games by Pete Alonso of the Mets, you think you would have learned your lesson and not let the one player on the opposing team do damage to beat you, right? But the Sox are now ahead four to three. Thankfully, Dustin, 
Um, you guys on the Mully and Haw show uh, in the morning uh, every other week at nine have Tommy Hadavi. And so this is what he talked about when you guys asked him, why pitch to Luis Robert? Why? Let's understand last night a little bit better. Julian Merriweather's on the mound. Luis Roberts at the plate. It's four to four. And, uh, or it's a tie game. And you, you look at, I'm sorry, three to three. Mm-hmm. And it's two outs. And you get him 0-2. Then it's 2-2. Eloy Jimenez is on deck, who's not hitting great right now. Did you want to pitch around him? Did you want to challenge him? Do you regret how that unfolded? Because obviously, Luis Robert got the best of Merriweather, hit the home run that made the difference. Take us through that at bat. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, like go, leading into the series, right? We always talk in, in a pregame series just about who do we not want to beat us? You know, how do we want to handle some of these moments? Um, but also, you know, understanding that, you know, pitching around guys, you, you still have to do it the right way, right? I think in that situation, you get 0-2 right away on Luis. Obviously, we know he's a dangerous hitter no matter what the count is. And, you know, Luis took one good chase slider below the bounce and then fouled off, you know, some fastballs and sliders just getting to that point. You know, Julian is not trying to throw that pitch for a strike 100%. You know, he knows and understands that, you know, we're trying to keep that to chase and we're, we're going to let him try to get himself out. And, and if we walk him, we walk him in that situation. I think, it, you know, sometimes, you know, we all forget they're human beings and and you can make physical mistakes, and, and but your mind can be in the right place. And, and you know, we talked about that in the New York series with Pete Alonso. You know, we knew he was a really good hitter. and We didn't want to give him anything, you know, too good to hit. But you can't think of it in a defensive, like a defensive way. You still have to be aggressive because if you start being defensive, you start backing off. That's when you start pulling pitches like what you saw. All those, all those hits, guys were trying to pitch in off the plate or go to chase off away and just made mistakes. And, and it happens, and good hitters make you pay for those. So, you know, I think for Julian, you know, talking through that with him, he definitely understood the situation, understood the count, the game score, and all those things, just, just didn't get that slider to chase. His slider has been his – best pitch of the year you know he's he's had a great done a great job of commanding that pitch in the strike zone but also being able to get it to chase when he needs to so you're going to go down with your best pitch and and pitching around guys with your best pitch is still an effective way to do it so it just obviously just didn't work out for us last night but the thought process and, and the approach was still in the right in the right place so interesting by good explanation by Tommy, you know, people make mistakes. I still didn't see how they pitched around uh, Pete Alonzo, but I will digress. Yeah. But um, there was also an argument the other day on marquee during the pregame between not an argument, but a heated debate between Lance Brostowski. He was on your show this morning and Cliff Floyd and Cliff Floyd was angry. Give him the fastball, try to blow it by him, go high, go low. But again, people make mistakes. He's right on that. And, and, that was a mistake, but you know, the Sox were now ahead because that Luis Robert home run four to three in the bottom of the eighth against the lefty Cody Bellinger hit one 359 feet to right, but is caught by Oscar Colas 12 inches away from a basket home run. Dustin fell a little short as did the Cubs as they lose five to three. Alzali gave up a run in the ninth and the Cubs went down meekly in their half of the inning. The offense scored three runs on five hits. The difference in this game, Dustin, the White Sox were four for nine with runners in scoring position, while the Cubs were one for six. Yeah, 
you when you go one for six with runners in scoring position, you are not going to win very many games. And the Cubs lost that game. Also, a interesting David Ross ejection during that game. Yeah, he was ejected, and it was weird because I was trying to figure out what's going on. It happened like right in front of me, and he's really heated. Uh, Lane Ramsey came into the game in the six. He had this weird leg rocking motion before coming set, and you could see Mike Napoli pointing and yelling at the umps. And they're not calling anything. And so after the inning's over in the top of the seventh, Ross comes out and he gets heated and he gets the old heave ho. Um, Nico Horner did record his 30th stolen base, the first Cub since Tony Campana in 2012 to steal 30 bases in a season. Also, Kyle Hendricks made his 13th career start against the White Sox, tying him for most in franchise history with Carlos Zambrano. How about this one? You love these old nicknames, Dustin, so I put it in here for you. He passed Hippo Vaughn for eighth place on the Cubs' all-time strikeout leader with 1,140. That's amazing, first of all, that the guy's name was Hippo. Well, we'll start there. And the fact that you don't think of Kyle Hendricks as a strikeout guy. So it just shows, like, his longevity, right? The fact that he has moved into eighth place. If you would have put – I would have never guessed he was in the top ten. But his longevity right. is there. And he's pitched a long time with the Cubs. So when you strike out five or six or four a game for forever, relations to him. Right. And so now I'm upset because that was the one that I kind of had marked as them winning. I didn't like the matchup of Asa- of Clevenger Assad again. I didn't know what to expect from Assad. He's uh, making another spot start. And, and, you know, we get some, you know, bad news before Tuesday's game. We'll get into that later. But in this game, right. Javier Assad, once again, another quality start. He didn't give up a hit until the fourth inning. With one out in the fourth, Andrew Benatendi singled, followed by a Luis Robert, uh, Robert single that hopped up and away from Ian Happ to put runners at second, third. That's an error on Happ, but I was at the game, like I said, Tuesday, and you could see the damage done on the field because of the concerts. So I'm not trying to make an excuse for Ian Happ. I just wonder because that hopped up really funky. Um, oh, it worked wild- both ways for both teams. He is not playing – Crowley, he is not playing a uh, a gold glove uh, left field this year. No, nobody, nobody's going to say that. But I, when, when I looked at that individual play and then like my season tickets are up high so I can see the whole, uh, they're the first de- row of the upper deck. I could see everything. I can see where the damage, where, where the field, where the stage was and that kind of stuff. If it hits it in a certain way, maybe it didn't against the White Sox. It surely did on that play, I think. And so with runners at second and third, um, Assad threw a wild pitch. The White Sox lead one nothing. Luckily, Cody Bellinger made a brilliant play at first when he caught a Jan Mokata line out and threw out Luis Robert to end that threat. So good there. But in the fifth, Andrew Vaughn walked, followed by a Gavin Sheets home run, and the Cubs were down three to nothing. But, Dustin, as we were talking about earlier, glad to see the club Cubs learn their lesson in the sixth inning. With one out, Andrew Benatendi doubled, and Assad intentionally walked Luis Robert. What happens? Yuan Moncada popped out to short, and Andrew Vaughn grounded out, and the inning was over. See how easy that works? But Assad, six innings, gave up four hits, three runs, two of them earned, four walks and two Ks. Another very good start for Assad. Yeah, that two earned runs, we'll take that every day of the week, right? Six innings pitch, two earned runs, you take that every time he goes out there. No problem with that at all. Walks a little higher than you'd like, but otherwise, real nice outing by him. Right. Now, I, I told you before that I just did not like Clevenger and, and he, he looked weird. He looked like Mickey Rourke. He looked all bloated and s- strange. And he does that weird wind. I, uh, I do not like the guy. Like, Sorry. He's like straight out of typecasting for white Sox fans. If you, if you, I mean, he just <laughs> looked like he's a white Sox fan on top of it. I just, 
Absolutely. He looked like the guy that attacked the Royals third base coach, that William Lagoon and his guy. But um, Clevenger had his best performance as a White Sox going seven innings, giving up three hits, seven Ks and two walks. He had the Cubs hitters off balance all night. They had their chances, two on and no outs in the first after a Talkman walk and Horner hit by pitch. Ian hit a soft grounder and the Cubs had runners at second and third and one out. But Clevenger struck out Bellinger and Swanson to end threat. They also stranded runners in the fourth when Ian Happ and Bellinger started off with singles in the inning, but Swanson was robbed of a hit by Andrew Benatendi on a nice sliding catch. Christopher, Christopher Morell flied out, and then Jaime Candelario walked to load the bases, but Seiya Suzuki lined out to center. Still no runs for the Cubs. Dustin, looked like the Cubs were dead and, and, and that they would be swept by the Sox, but things changed in the eighth. Top of the eighth, Jose Cuas comes into the game, gives up a single, a wild pitch. He walks Tim Anderson and Andrew Benatendi to load the bases, no outs. Worst outing for him since he came to the Cubs. That's That was it for Kuas, and Michael Fulmer comes into the game. Bases loaded, no outs. They're already down 3 nothing, and the White Sox are looking to put this away and take their crosstown cup. But Fulmer strikes out the next three batters, Luis Roberts, Yuan Moncada, and Andrew Vaughn. That was key, and that's the momentum shift right there. Absolutely, amen. And I think, Crawley, he did it on 11 or 12 pitches. Right, almost immaculate. It was, it was, it was amazing. Then Nick Madrigal, who we haven't heard much of ever since, obviously, Candelario comes in. He comes into the eighth to pinch it for Tucker Bardhart. And of all the guys against his own team, he puts a basket home run to left to make it three to one. I mean, unbelievable. You, you would have never guessed that he was going to do that. Never in a million years. I wonder what that would have paid out, right? Um, <laughs> Drew Drew Smiley pitches a scoreless nine, so I'll tap, tip of the hat to him there. And Gregory Santos, who I saw on Tuesday night, who looked really good, came on to close the ninth. But the Cubs got to see him that night before. Cody Bellinger led off the inning with a double. Dansby Sonson draws a walk. And up comes Christopher Morell. Now, we know Morell was on the cold list. He's been struggling. He falls behind quickly 0-2. But on a 1-2 pitch, Santos throws a 99.5-mile-per-hour sinker that did not sink. Morell hits one into the bleachers and right center for a three-run walk-off home run. Morell had the most enthusiastic run you've ever seen around the bases since David Bodie hit that grand slam in 2018. He sprinted around the bases. His team mobs him. They rip his shirt off. It was magic. A lot, no. of, uh, lot of magic that night, Crowley, and uh, they needed to, a little magic going from the uh, Fulmer to Madrigal and then to the man of the hour, uh, Christopher Morell. Let me tip my hat. Uh, Marquis did a phenomenal job if you watched it that whole ninth inning, but especially the call of the home run by Boog was great. They did a lot of cool camera work. They had drones going off. It looked really, really good. Now, I have watched that play 20 times since it happened, at least, minimum. I've listened to Boog and JD, Rat Pat and Ron. I listened to Ben Attendee and Stone and Len Casper. But the best call of the moment was by friend of the podcast. He's been a guest, Miguel Esparza. I got to play this for you. And if you have a chance, whenever you watch a game, even if you don't speak Spanish, maybe you learn a little bit, hit the SAP button. This was Miguel's call of the play. <laughs>
I love that guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we played that this morning as well uh, to start off the, uh, I believe, the 8 o'clock hour of our show today. Great call. Great call by Miguel. I'm going to see him tonight. I can't wait. I love this guy. Give him a big hug. But the Cubs should have been swept in the series, Dustin. It, in game two, the Cubs had only three hits in the first seven innings. They were one pitch away from having their playoff hopes derailed by losing two to the Sox. But guess what? Even when everyone else counts this team out, they keep fighting. This season has had its ups and downs. They were 10 games under. They could have quit at any time, but they don't. They believe in each other. And to me, Dustin, seeing Swanson and Bellinger celebrate with Morrell, you see how this team just supports each other. They're there for each other. They wanted to get a shot at a playoff run. And rather than seeing their team broken up during the trade deadline, and, and, and Jed's rewarded them, and they, they keep believing in themselves. And to me, Dustin, it'll be interesting to see how far their faith in each other will take them if they make the postseason. Yeah, they're definitely uh, facing the pressure and then doing the best that they can with it. No doubt about that. You're listening to the Fly the W670 podcast. It's episode 62 of season two, a Christopher Morrell miracle. And in this segment, Crowley interviews Roy Wood Jr., stand-up comic and correspondent for The Daily Show, to discuss his involvement in Marquee Network's upcoming Buck O'Neill documentary. Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast, you've seen him on The Daily Show, you've seen his stand-up work. Welcome, Roy Wood. How you doing, Roy? How you doing? How the hell are you doing? No well, complaints. The, <laughs> the Cubs are in contention, so, you know, that's got to be fun. How uh, now, now, I'm just curious, Roy, how did you become a Cubs fan? For me, it came down to growing up as a child you root for what you can watch on TV. This is Birmingham, Alabama in the 80s for context. So it, it, the Cubs and Braves were the two teams. Those are the two, nationally, those are the two teams that came on because they were both funded by, you know, superstations, WGN and TBS respectively. The Braves pretty much only played night games. So I just couldn't never watch them because we only had one TV in the house with cable. And it's crazy to think about that now considering that every single screen that you own can bring you every single thing that exists. But in 1987, only one TV in the house was the portal to sports and porn and Bruce Willis movies. Like that was, that's what, you know, cable was. So the Cubs came on during the day. So I came home from school. You watch what you can have access to. So you can root for all these other teams. I started out, oh, I'm a Mets fan. I was born in New York. Well, you're only going to watch them when they play the Cubs, you bastard. So you may as well fall in love with Andre Dawson and his Jerry Curl <laughs> and keep it moving. And so it, it was a little bit of that, also a little bit of an X factor. Uh, my father growing up, uh, my father, he played, he lived in Chicago for a very long time, like from age four until his career took him away. Uh, from the city uh, he did a radio show with Ernie Banks so I think that was also part of it as well is that you know my dad was also biased yeah and and you know when you talk about some of those guys I mean you're talking about legendary Mr. Cub Ernie Banks and Andre Dawson just just fun players you know I grew up in the Dawson era and my dad grew up with Ernie Banks as well and and it was just always you know that connection and once you're in it's you're in for life you know what I mean Correct. Correct. And so, you know, and people also forget in the 80s, the Cubs were the better franchise than the Braves in the 80s. The Cubs had the playoffs twice. They were close 
a couple other years. Dawson was the MVP in 87 when they were trash, but they were always a competitive squad. So, you know, that part of it was a big deal. So by the time the Braves came around the corner in 91-92, it was too late, bro. I had the I had the Ryan Sandberg poster on the wall. So Oh yeah, you know, and, and, we were and, done. And unfortunately the Braves got Greg Maddox and then that that the both franchises kind of kind of turned on that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they yeah, he slid away and when they had a great fling. We basically got great Maddox at the beginning and then he just went and had a fling got a ring and got all the glory, then came back on the back end like, all right, you're the one I really love. Do you? (laughs) You gave them all your good years. (laughs) Roy, I got to tell you, I'm excited. I'm sitting there today, and the announcement comes down. Uh, The Cubs are playing the next series after tonight against the White Sox. They're traveling to Kansas City. And for the people that, you know, watch and listen to the podcast, we've had um, Bob Kendrick on a bunch of times. We love Bob. And Bob is the – along with Buck O'Neill are the guys that really were laid the foundation for the Negro league baseball museum in Kansas city. So while the Cubs are in Kansas city on Saturday after the game, um, there's going to be a Cubs 360 from the Negro league baseball museum featuring Cole Wright, Bob Kendrick, Doug Glanville and J.A. Adande. So they're going to talk about the Negro league museum. And Mm -hmm. then this is, this is where I'm excited 7 p.m. Central Time on Sunday, Buck O'Neill, It's All Jazz. Why don't you tell our listeners what's going on with that documentary? So, you know, right now we've been able to do something that basically chronicles, you know, Buck O'Neill's journey through the Negro Leagues and what that meant, not only for not only for players in that time, but for players after him. And I think the thing that's, you know, that's really interesting, you know, and, and, you know, and and it's also dope that, that this conversation is starting in Kansas city because, you know, Buck O'Neill was there, you know, he played for the Kansas city Monarchs and, you know, Kansas city, just as a, as a baseball city, number one sidebar, Kauffman stadium, best fan experience. If you're going Cubs fans go at least two hours early uh, and try the limeade Add vodka. Thank me later. That's not why we're here right now. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's important that these stories get told. And so, you know, the people over, the people over at Marquee Sports, you know, they reached out and they asked me if I wanted to be a part of this. And I'm like, hail to the yes. You know, and, and for the people who don't know a lot about me, my heart is deep with baseball. And I grew up playing baseball in high school. And, you know, I've done what I can to donate um, equipment and money and technology Uh, to my old high school team to make sure that we still have some degree of minority involvement in baseball. Because when we talk about the Negro leagues and we talk about the past of what baseball was, you know, and we can call it a dark past, you know, because it wasn't necessarily a good thing. I think what's been very important in these conversations about the Negro leagues is to also, while we talk about the past, take a look towards the future and what we're doing to make sure that the sport stays as accessible to people of all economic backgrounds, not just race, but we're also, you know, we're talking about wealth here as well. Um, you know, they just announced MLB that the, um, that the, well, you can't call it the field of dreams game because the field of dreams run, they own the name field of dreams, but 
the throwback game and the throwback field. I don't know what it's called for next year. It's going to be in Birmingham at Rickwood Field. It's the oldest standing uh, professional facility in the country. I played my high school games there. And, you know, they've retro that entire field to make it look like something of the era when when baseball was segregated. And that's always been the aesthetic of the field. I don't want people to think they did that deliberately <laughs> for, for the throwback game. Like, let's make it look like, no, that's so they're going to be honoring the Birmingham Black Barons. They're going to be honoring Hank Aaron at that game, um, to my understanding. And, you know, even in a conversation like that, you know, it's so dope that that's happening in the hometown, but, you know, so that we can know what we're fighting to keep alive and what we're fighting to keep relevant, you know, in communities of color and poor communities, it's important that a story like Buck O'Neill's be told. So you understand what this brother had to overcome in order to actually even get a look, to even get a chance, a chance to get a chance, you know, that, that part of it, you know, it's very, very important because, you know, when we talk about the Negro Leagues, we talk about Jackie Robinson and Jackie Robinson was first and Jackie Robinson was very important and that was pivotal. It really was. And I think that what gets lost in that sauce is all of these other amazing stories. And it's not just that these players are relevant and the stories should be told because they're black. They were good. They were good. And there just wasn't cameras there to capture all of it. So, you know, I think that part of it to me is the thing that, you know, really makes me sad, you know, and, and, you know, to, to, uh, to have an opportunity to be a part of anything that captures the history of the game that I love, it was, it was a no brainer. Right. And, 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 you know, when we talk about Buck O'Neill, there is things that, you know, as Cub fans, you know, I feel like Kansas City and you talked about Kauffman Stadium, they have embraced Buck as, as one of their own. But when he when we talk about professional, Buck O'Neill was the first African-American coach and he was a coach for the Cubs. He was so integral in Cubs history. Now, as you're doing this narration for the documentary, were there certain things that you didn't know about Buck O'Neill that you learned and, and, and kind of brought your fandom to a different level? The one thing that I didn't know about Buck O'Neill before the documentary um, was the role that he played in Ernie Banks, you know, becoming a Cub. And this idea of, you know, Buck looking at people in the Negro leagues and looking at people in the minors and going, Hey man, y'all should consider this guy. Um, you know, and, and not even like on some, trust me, he's gracious. Yeah. Think about him. And then that guy turns into Mr. Cub and that doesn't happen without Buck O'Neill. So, you know, when you look at so many players that may not have come up through the Negro league system and cross the, cross the color line, in their career, their opportunities were afforded to them by people that did. And, you know, I think that part of, you know, Buck's journey is very, very interesting. You know, he's, he's kind of one of those guys. I'm trying to think like, I'm trying like, like, I don't know, Bob Brindley, maybe like, like these guys who were good as players, they were solid as players, but then they have this whole second life that just, like as a manager and a scout and doing all these other things that are just as damn interesting as some of the things they did on the field. 
Right. And, and what I tell a lot of our listeners is that it was, it was Buck, like you said, who took Ernie under his wing, kind of really taught him how to be a major leaguer. It was Buck who scouted everybody from Lou Brock uh, to Joe Carter to Lee Smith. And I know Lee Smith took part in the documentary. Mm -hmm. uh, Billy Williams was enduring some racist taunts in, you know, in the minor leagues and he quit baseball. He said, I'm done. He goes home. Who do they send to, to get him back? Buck mm -hmm. O'Neill. And, and, and so it's almost like without Buck O'Neill, the history of the Cubs, you know, the Cubs history, you know, post 1945 is not good, but it was made way better by Buck O'Neill. And if they would have listened to Buck a little bit more, it maybe if they even let him coach as a manager, how different things may have been for the Cubs history. Maybe we don't have to wait till 2016 <laughs> to get a championship. Well, you want to hope that, but let's be fair. The, the, the Cubs also ran into the Ernie Banks in the gang ran into the big red machine <laughs> and then, and then Clemente <laughs> and, and the pirates, the, the national league was pretty stacked oh, yeah. <laughs> in the seventies and early eighties. Um, you know, the Ozzy's cards and, you know, all of that, but it, it, it's, it's hands down, you know, it's just an honor to be able to tell a part of that story. And I think it's only fair that I narrated it because I'm the person who was probably of everybody involved, the worst at baseball. <laughs> you know, I played through high school. I tried out in college. So there's that, but you don't get a, you don't get a letter on your jacket for trying out and then getting cut after an hour and then ending up at Shoney's as a server <laughs> <laughs> two hours later. I tried out for baseball and literally two hours later, I was hired at Shoney's. There you go. Well, you know, in the documentary, our friend Bob Kendricks, they're president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Joe Poznanski, who is the author of The Soul of Baseball, which I encourage everybody to read that's interested in Buck O'Neill. And then Ken Burns is in it. And, and Ken Burns, if people remember that documentary, he had a whole thing on baseball. And Buck O'Neill really stole, stole the show. Like, that's the mm -hmm. one that when people go back to that documentary, you're like, oh, my God, who is this guy? And, and, and when you talk about Buck's second life and the career after he almost had like you know three or four different lives but towards the end of his life the push to build that museum the, the negro league baseball museum that doesn't get done without buck and and buck pushing to make sure that negro league players were inducted into the baseball hall of fame in cooperstown and you know i'm just sad that he he missed out on the vote when when he had the opportunity to get back in when he was still alive and then yeah. even then he misses out on the vote and then they ask him to induct everybody, and he does so graciously. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I, and that facility in Kansas City, you know, for any baseball fan, that is, that's that's a, you know, I, yeah, I can say a pilgrimage because baseball is a religion. Baseball is religion at, at that level. If it's a religion for you, the Negro League Museum, to me, is as important as Cooperstown. And I actually appreciate the fact that the museum exists in one of the pivotal cities for the teams and not in Cooperstown because they very easily could have just said, Oh, let's put it in Cooper. Let's build another wing on the side of this. And, and which, and it would have been fine. And it would have been great. It would all have been all the same. Great stuff would have been donated for people to look at. Kansas city's more centrally located the Cooperstown and the, the museum is in the Paseo district, which is a historically black, part of kansas city and there's pure black culture 
up and down that street, not just in the museum, but in the shops and everything that's up and around that area. So you definitely get a feeling for what it was like to be around in that space in that time when you walk through those walls. The thing that's really, the thing that the museum is able to do that most civil rights exhibits are not able to do just because they can't is that the museum gives you a sense of optimism about what could be, but you do not leave with this overwhelming feeling of sympathy and sadness for what was because none of the players who played in that era ever took a moment to feel sorry for themselves because right. when you look at that era of civil rights that was stress those were wild times and yes there was a lot of racism they dealt with on the roads but most of them were very happy to be playing the game they loved and I think, you know, one thing that's really cool when we talked to Bob is he talked about how now MLB The Show, which is how you kind of get to young kids, is through video games. MLB The Show, you can play as Negro players. You can play as Satchel Page or Josh Gibson or any of the great Negro League players. And so what an opportunity to kind of, you know, to bring some of the past, some of the history alive in the museum through the video games. I think it kind of is something that's really cool. Yeah, and, and it's not hitting kids over the head. It's just letting them know, you know, what's what has been happening. You know, I play MLB The Show, and I've played the whole Negro League storyline that they have, and it's a lot of rich history intertwined within the gameplay, and I think that's the thing that's, like, really dope about it. Now, do you see yourself, Roy, uh, coming to Wrigley anytime soon? I've seen you throw first pitches out there. You got an arm. So maybe, maybe you know, You're Shoney's. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I one hopped one and Cole Wright from Marquee won't let me live it down. So I got to come back and redeem myself. I'm hoping uh, first, first week of September, you know, I'm just not sure when, you know, with the writer's strike and everything that's going on, and writers and actor strike. Um, it's hard to kind of find pockets because I'm touring now, you know, I'm back on the road as a stand-up, So I have to find my places, you know? Right. Uh, they are doing a, and, and, and being somebody that grew up in the eighties, like in the Cubs, they're doing the first week of September seventh, uh, eighth, ninth. They are recognizing Mark Grace and Shawan Dunstan uh, for the Cubs hall of fame. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, who knows? It might be cool to kind of catch that out. And I, I showed you this picture before we jumped on, this is you <laughs> interviewing me outside of Wrigley. You got the Cubs bathrobe on and, and, and you did this hilarious segment with Cub fans outside of Wrigley field. That was in 2017. Yeah. I think Hassan Minhaj was with me on that one. I think we were both out there. Yeah. We were bathing in the afterglow of the 2016 championship and you were just so nice to everybody. Hilarious taking pictures and it was a lot of fun and we look forward to having you back out yeah. there. Well, I'll do my best to get back. Um, you know, I, I was trying to come at the end of August for the Brewers series, but I think it's better that I come if it's Giants or D-backs or some game that it's not a rivalry game, per se, just so I can save my voice because I'm still on tour. <laughs> and so if... <laughs> If, if people wanted to catch you on tour, where would they go to, to find out when you're playing? Oh, man, RoyWoodJr.com is my website, RoyWoodJr.com. We're going everywhere from Miami to Seattle. Uh, so, you know, just check me out there. And um, I'm covering all the time zones. I'm covering all the divisions if you want to get into baseball about it. 
Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a good time out there on the road throwing jokes, and I uh, hope to see everybody out there. Yep, and you can you're a great follow on Twitter at Roy Wood Jr. And again, if for people that are interested, Buck O'Neill, it's all jazz Sunday, 7 p.m. Central Time. This is a piece of memorabilia that I is near and dear to me that I have. It's going to be going to the framer very soon, but it's a picture of Buck O'Neill in that great 1960s Cubs uniform. I'm so looking forward to it. And Roy, I'm so glad you got to be a part of it. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. All right, have a good one. This is the Fly the W670 podcast, a Christopher Morell miracle. It's season two. It's episode 62. Don't forget to listen. Don't forget to review. Don't forget to subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. Crowley, how about those standings? Oh, boy. The roller coaster ride continues, Dustin. As we take a look at the standings right here, the NL Central, the Cubs are 2.5 backs of Milwaukee. Milwaukee's in that tough stretch. They've lost two in a row. So, again, the Cubs could be 1.5 back if they could have took care of Tuki Toussaint. The Reds are right there with them, 2.5 back. Uh, Pittsburgh, 8.5, and St. Louis, 8.5. So they're tied for the basement. When we look at the wild card, if the playoffs started today, the Cubs are in by percentage points over the Reds. So you got that, and Miami uh, is on a two-game losing streak, but Arizona's bounced back recently with a two-game winning streak. So we got to keep an eye, a lot of scoreboard watching going on still. Yeah, a lot of scoreboard watching going on. And uh, also heard, Crawley, that uh, you and your fellow season ticket holders got a bill in the mail. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you know they're going to be trying to do this while it's hot. So what's going to end up happening is we got our emails about postseason tickets. Usually that happens beginning of September. This is early. And not only that, but what the Cubs decided to do is send their invoices to season ticket holders. And so they're trying to kind of do those two things. If you want postseason tickets, you got to kind of then then that'll go for whatever you don't use. The remainder of the balance will be going towards your next year's balance. Right. Um, but if you don't get postseason tickets and, and, and you don't don't do this or if you don't try to choose to do that, it, it's it's funky. It's going to be more difficult. They want all the payment or not. I think half the payment up front like in like early September or October, very early for um, having to pay for 2024. All right. So I'm sure that uh, you uh, pulled out your uh, wad of cash from uh, all your collectibles and you uh, paid that bill over to the Cubs. Also, Marquis got a couple of special uh, shows coming up that you want to talk about. Yeah, we're going to be previewing the Kansas City matchup. But as you guys know, we've had Bob Kendrick on the show numerous times. KC is the home of the Negro uh the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So after the game on Saturday, Cubs 360, there's going to be a special with Bob, also Cole Wright, Doug Glanville, and J.A. Adande at the Negro League Museum. And the other is the documentary, Buck O'Neill. It's all jazz. One of the most important figures. We've talked about him plenty on this podcast with Bob. It's going to be a must-see for Cub fans on Sunday night at 7 p.m. Don't miss it. I promise you it's going to be good. All right, going to fire up the DVR. Before we preview the Royals, let's talk about some rosters and unfortunate injury news. Yep, Caleb Killian was optioned back to Iowa, and Michael Rucker is back up. So Killian down, Rucker up. That was before the game on Tuesday. Nick Birdie worked one inning in Iowa with a strikeout and a walk on his rehab assignment. And Brad Boxberger pitched a third of an inning in the ACL, Arizona Complex League, and faced four batters with no issues. But that's not the big news, Dustin. <laughs> No, that's not it, Crowley. 
Big news prior to the game on Tuesday, we find out that Stroman wasn't going to be making the start against the White Sox on Wednesday. Apparently, he started experiencing right rib discomfort as he threw his bullpen in Toronto. The news came out on Wednesday that test shows he has a right rib cartilage fracture. Zero timeline on when he will be back. Jed Hoyer was asked about it. He said, I have no idea. That's the honest truth. We don't really know at this point. It's not a real common pitching injury. I've never seen that before. So for me to speculate would be false. So the rumor or one of the suggestions is, is that, first of all, usually they throw 30 pitches in these cases. He threw 50 pitches for some reason. Then he supposedly was involved in taking balls during batting practice. And maybe that's where he got hurt by getting hit with a ball or a throwing motion when he's out there screwing around, acting like he's a shortstop. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, that's how Stroh plays. And, you know, you want him coming into a game, being able to throw a decent amount of pitches, and he takes pride in his defense. I'm just going to chalk it up to bad luck, man. It just it happens. All right, it happens. I, I, I got a ton to say on Marcus Stroman. We're a little pressed for time on this one. We'll get back to this later. But the other interesting part now is where does David Ross turn? Drew Smiley, Hayden Wisniewski, is it somebody from the minors? Looks like the experts are saying that David Ross will go with Smiley next time through. Right. That's what he said. He didn't rule out Hayden Wesniski, but um, we'll see what Smiley has. Again, uh, the rosters expand on September 1st. Uh, ben Brown has been on the IL. Uh, so right now, Jordan Wicks looks like a, a good candidate to come up, uh, former first-round draft pick of the Cubs. So just something we're going to have to keep an eye on. This makes it a lot harder, but there's nothing you can do other than next man up. All right, this weekend, starting Friday afternoon, we're going to keep our eyes on the Cubs as they are hosting the Royals. And believe it or not, the Royals are even worse than the White Sox. 65 and 97 They uh, last season is what they finished. Last place in the AL Central. Dustin, for the last five seasons, the Royals have finished either fourth or fifth in the AL Central. This was supposed to, they're going to try something different this year. They, they got Jordan Lyles. They got Zach Greinke or all this Chapman, Ryan Yarbo and Josh Taylor. They did lose Adalberto Mondesi and Michael A. Taylor, but the moves didn't work. They're one of the worst teams in baseball. Only the A's are worse. For all this, Trapman was traded to the Rangers. They traded shortstop Nicky Lopez to the Braves, Scott Barlow to the Padres, and Ryan Yarbo went to the Dodgers. And don't forget, the Cubs got uh, Jose Quas for Nelson Velasquez. So we'll be seeing Nelson Velasquez this weekend. But something to kind of keep in mind here, Dustin, is that even though they're bad, we, we said how bad they are. They're wrapping up a four-game series with Seattle. They've lost two of three, but their offense has been explosive, scoring seven runs, eight runs, and five runs. Now, their pitching stinks. They're giving up more than they're scoring. But just, just kind of keep that in mind right now. When I was looking at the hots and the knots and all that stuff, you're, you're taking a look at Kansas City, and you're saying to yourself, man, this, this team right now, is a team that has uh, has a lot of guys that are hot right now. Well, speaking of giving up runs and giving up walks, that's uh, the game one pitcher on Friday, Jamison Tyone. Jamison Tyone, record of 7-7, seven and seven, 571 ERA. He was doing really good until that last start in Toronto. He went three innings pitch, gave up eight hits, eight earned runs, two walks, and two Ks. Awful. Before that, though, against the Mets, seven innings, three hits, two earned runs. And against Cincinnati, he went five innings, gave up seven hits, two earned runs. We need that guy. That's the guy that we need back. That's the guy we need back indeed. Absolutely. 
And um, for the Royals, we're going to have Cole Ragans coming in here. When we talk about Ragans, you know, a lot of these guys, again, like when we, we saw the White Sox and some of these other teams, uh, the, the, the Mets, a lot of their pitchers that they started with have been traded. Um, Ragans is three and four with a 421 ERA against St. Louis. He went five innings, gave up seven hits, four earned runs, five walks, and four strikeouts. He's another one of these guys with electric arms that can throw a lot of strikeouts and a lot of walks. His last start before that, 8-7 against Boston, he went 6.2. Only gave up one earned run, Dustin, 11 strikeouts to one walk. So, yeah, well, again, live arm. Hopefully that changes on Friday, no doubt about that. All right, game two will feel a little bit better, right? Um, yeah, you know, you, you're just hoping that, uh, you know, whenever you got Justin Steele on the mound – you're saying to yourself, hey, you know, I got this. And so with Justin Steele on the mound, uh, he is 13-3. and three. Against Toronto, went five innings, gave up six hits, three earned runs, seven strikeouts. Um, didn't go six innings, unfortunately. But, you know, again, in his last three starts, he's given up three earned runs each time. Went five innings, 5.1 against Atlanta, and six innings in Cincinnati. He's given up three innings each time. So, or three runs each time. So let's see what he does against KC. What's KC throwing back the Cubs with? Now, against the Cubs, they're going to have Brady Singer. Now, with Brady Singer, he's a righty. He is 8-8 eight and eight with a 491 ERA. Last start against Seattle, no decision. He went 7.1 innings pitch, gave up only two earned runs. Against Boston, 6.2 innings, gave up only three earned runs. And against the Mets, gave up only eight. Uh, he went eight innings and gave up zero earned runs. So... You know, these starters have been doing really well as well. It's just once you get past the starters, they got nothing behind that. Well, let's hope we can run them out quickly. And then game three, we got Kyle Hendricks. Yep, the professor, Kyle Hendricks, again, a victim in his last outing of a lot of bad contact. Uh, sometimes, again, when you pitch to contact, that's what's going to happen. They just, The balls just find spots to drop in. He's four and six. He went six innings, gave up only three and runs against the White Sox. Went five innings, gave up only two earned runs against the Mets. And then against Atlanta, that was the bad one. He stinks against Atlanta. Four innings, he gave up seven earned runs. But we definitely, uh, with this Stroman injury, Dustin, everybody's got to step up. Yep, it is step-up time. Let's talk about uh, hot and not now, Crowley. Let's talk about uh, Nico Horner and Cody Bellinger. Of course, Cody Bellinger's on the list, but Nico Horner back on the hot list, right? Yeah, real quick, Jordan Lyles, he's 3-13 and 13 with the 6.30 ERA. So that's, that's where the Cubs can easily. 3-13, who cares? The Cubs are going to pound him. <laughs> so, yeah, Nico Horner has been hot for the Cubs as of late. He has really been looking good. Seven for his last 17 with one home run, one RBI, slashing 4-12, 5-24, and 6-47. And Cody Bellinger, he never leaves the list. Six for his last 18 with the home run and three RBIs. He is slashing 333, 400 with a 611 slug. Um, on the knot, you got uh, at the bottom right there, you got Jan Gomes. He's been struggling, one for his last 10 with no home runs, no RBI, slashing 100, 250, 200, kind of coming, reverting back to the means, right? And then uh, regressing back to the means, sorry. And then Mike Talkman, who's just everyone's been talking about, but now he's one for 13 with an RBI, slashing 0.077. 0.250, 0.077. Yeah, 
Yeah, Talkman has been struggling a little bit, um, has gotten some games off. It'll be interesting to see what they do with him down the stretch. Jan Gomes looking old. Does uh, the Royals, um, they've got to have a, guy, a lot of long list on the knots considering their record, but how about on the hot side? Who do Cub fans have to watch out for? The Royals are very hot right now. Mikhail Garcia, the third baseman, nine for his last 20 with two RBIs, slashing 450, 476, 500. Uh, long stalwart Salvador Perez catcher 10 for his last 25 with two home runs and nine RBI slashing 400, 385, 680. Again, this team is hot right now. One guy that I just want to kind of, uh, you know, a lot of these guys in the last seven games, these are their, you know, they're batting 450, 400, 391, 375, 375. Uh, the one guy I really want to warn everybody about is Bobby Witt, the shortstop 10 for his last 27 with three home runs and eight RBIs and former Cub Nelson Velasquez six for his last 19 with three home runs and four RBIs. Wish he would have gotten a chance to play here some, but that's that. And so there are a lot of high, high, hot guys right now, but be careful, Bobby Witt and Nelson Val, uh, Velasquez. Yeah. Witt had that inside the park home run not too long ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's an exciting young player, man. All right, Crowley. How about some predictions? Um, for the predictions, I am saying right now that the Cubs take two of three. I'm just hoping the offense turns around. I don't know. I'm trying to be positive after last night, but I'm, if you're, if, if you're asking me if I'm confident about that two for three, it's a shaky two for three. All right. I'm going sweep Crowley. Christopher Morrell woke everybody up. They know they're not getting Stroman back. This team has got to go now. And as you like to say, they got to put their, uh, foot on the proverbial neck of some weak teams. And this is as weak as it gets Cubs to sweep the Royals this weekend. Crowley's got two out of three. I've got the sweep Crowley. That's a wrap. Don't forget to listen, download, review, and subscribe to the fly to W podcast. Follow us on the socials, fly the W on Facebook, Instagram, and don't forget you can email us fly the W six seventy at gmail.com. And you can watch us on the YouTube channel. That's right. Subscribe to the 670 The Scores YouTube page and do just that. Crowley, happy Friday tomorrow. Happy Cubs just out of the lead in the division. And right now, if the season started, the postseason started, the Cubs would be in the postseason. So we've got to be excited about that. Postseason baseball. That is baseball at its finest. I hope they make it because I will be there cheering. Go Cubs! It's all over.